Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and welcome to the last episode in the Lent series. It's Holy Week, and Easter's almost here. So this Lent series is called A Book That Changed Me, and it offers four different conversations with guests on a book of their choice that changed them, made them think deeply about transformation, or brought them closer to truth. Books can be mirrors. They can help us to consider ourselves in a new light. Each of these conversations is quite different, some more personal, others less, and the books span from the Middle Ages to the 1960s. And if you're inspired, I'd love to hear about a book that changed you on social media, where you can find me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. My last guest of this series is Claude Acho, who has chosen to talk about the novel A Picture of Dorian Gray by the witty, prolific Oscar Wilde. It was partially because of this haunting, fascinating novel that Wilde was unjustly sentenced to prison due to his sexuality and ultimately hounded to his untimely death. Dorian is one of those mirror-like books that I've mentioned holding up our own hypocrisies to ourselves as we read about a young man's worship of himself. Claude Acho resides in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he lives with his family, serves as a pastor of Church of the Resurrection, and enjoys coaching his kids in basketball and soccer. In addition to his preaching and pastoral work, Claude speaks and writes about literature, film, music, and culture from a theological perspective. His writing has been featured at The Witness, a Black Christian collective, Think Christian, and Christ and Pop Culture. His writing often lives at the intersection of theology, culture, and African-American experience. He's the author of Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. Welcome, Claude. I am so glad you're here. It's great to have you. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for this, Grace. Thanks for the invitation, and I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. So I ask everyone who comes on the show to get to know you questions. And the first is, what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why? And you can answer more than one. I know that yeah. you're, you're an English yeah. major and this is going to be hard for you. So, you know, go for yeah, it. Yeah, these, I mean, yeah, these questions are always hard because whenever I'm asked something like this, I, I just, my mind just goes blank as if I've never been asked this question before <laughs> and as if I've never read a book before. So, um, so I just totally kind of shut down when this happens. Um, I, I would say... Um, this is just this is just a hard question for me always. I, it it kind of depends maybe on the on the day or the mood that I'm in. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm definitely inclined to say um, one of them would be Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, mm-hmm. um, which came out I think I want to say 1952. Um, I'd have to uh, double check Cl- close to that. Um, I, I think that's just I, I had never I've never read a book like that um, before. That is so. Um, kind of sweeping in its portrayal of somebody in search of identity uh, mm. and meaning and value, you know, obviously in its context, uh, an unnamed African-American protagonist searching for, uh, for dignity and belonging in a, in a world that's, you know, determined to deny that from him. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd never read something so kind of like wild, almost surreal at times, comic at times, like really poignant, violent, sad, and moving and almost like sermonic and like jazz. It's just all of these things together. And so reading that, it, I just remember being like, wow, I, I, I didn't know this could be done in, in a novel. Um, so for the form, but then also for uh, sort of the poignant nature of the story. So th- that'd probably be my pick as, as, as my favorite. That's great. I read The Invisible Man a really long time ago, like in high school. And I I feel like you've just convinced me that I really need to return to it. It's been a long time and I I don't recall it that clearly. And I it I love that uh the playing with genre. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, it's a really interesting the other I think the other thing I really like about the book as well is reading it and then reading more of Ellison's story. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great biography uh, about him by um, I think it's Arnold Rampersad, who also wrote a biography on a uh, two volume biography on the poet Langston Hughes. 
And yeah, Ralph Elson was kind of like a prickly dude. Like he wasn't the nicest guy around necessarily, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he has an incredible story and he works so hard to become a writer. Like he really, uh, he just trained and he like disciplined Mm -hmm. himself and apprenticed himself under, you know, great, great writers. And so I think I really admire it on that level. And he really tried to study, um, the Bible, uh, great Russian novelist to, to sort of learn how the forms of literature. And what's really neat is an invisible man with that knowledge, you can sort of see him bringing all of these forms together. So it really is, uh, an ode to the great writers that have come before him, but then he, he, he does his own thing with it within his sort of tradition as a, as an American, as African-American specifically. So I think I really admire, um, someone kind of the development that it took for him to make that, that work. Wow, that's so cool. I had no idea. And I'm definitely writing that Ralph Ellison bio down. That sounds phenomenal. Okay, my second question for you is, which literary character do you most identify with and why? Yeah, this is a this is an impossible. <laughs> this is an impossible question. It's kind We're of a talking mean about question. This. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the 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 cruelest thing that's going to happen to me today <laughs> is that you asked me this. Um, I don't. That that's so hard. I mean, I think the easy cop out would be to return to Invisible Man and and mm. say, hey, I, you know, Invisible, the protagonist. Um, and I think really in a way anyone could say that because we're, you know, we're, we're made to be seen and to mm. be recognized that uh, we're image bearers and we have value irrespective of what we've done or, or what we've achieved or not achieved. So his sort of searching journey I can relate to, you know, of sort of like, okay, education, more yeah. education will make me feel like I've accomplished something or political activism or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so that, that would be one. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I can give you a fun one that my, my son would like if he ever listens (laughs) to this. Uh, this would be from a, from a from a comic, a Japanese manga, uh, my hero academia. There's a main character, Izuku Midoriya, who is sort of like this tender hearted, sweet, uh, determined kid who wants to be a hero because he wants to help others. And so I would, I would love to say that's, <laughs> that's like who I am. Like I just want to <laughs> serve and love others. Um, you know, that, that's not always, always my bent sadly, but I, but I, that's a character that aspirationally, like I just, I, I really, I really admire in the way, um, the way that he sees good, even in, even in villains, even mm. in people who are doing evil, he sees them as, uh, still being capable of of redemption right this sort of idea that um they though they're not walking in the likeness of god they retain the image of god and so there's still mm-hmm. uh hope for them so that's a character um in, that that i really admire so i would say ellison ellison's invisible as a cop-out and then as a, for a fun answer I, I would give uh izuku from from my hero academia which i'm going to guarantee is the only mention of that uh, of that Japanese manga that's going to happen on your podcast. So I, I do <laughs> I do hope I get respect for that. No, I don't think anyone has mentioned a manga character before as the as a, a literary character they most identify with. So that's fantastic. You're just <laughs> Thank you. widening the reference frame and I love it. Um <laughs> I I'm not very familiar with manga at all. So that sounds really wonderful. Okay, so for this Lent series on old books with grace, I've been talking with different guests about a book that has changed or transformed you in some way um, as this podcast series thinks through the themes of turning and conversion and repentance and human change in Lent. And um, I had asked you to pick a book and you chose Oscar Wilde's A Picture of Dorian Gray, which is a wonderful book. And I'm so glad you picked it. I I was really excited to reread it. um, And I wasn't disappointed. But before we get into that, uh, let's briefly think through context and um, who was Oscar Wilde? When did he live? What else has he written? If we could just sit there for a minute. Yeah, and and you can help me too with this, Grace. I took a um, a big seminar on Oscar Wilde uh, at late in undergrad studying English, and so I'm awesome. I'm trying to draw on that. Yeah, <laughs> a of, yeah. A lot of those memories was are... the whole seminar on Oscar Wilde. It, it was. Oh, yeah, we fun. read we read most of this big thick tome that I'm that I'm holding up. Oh, the works of Oscar a... Wilde, but <laughs> those those memory files are are a little bit rusty. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so uh, Wilde was a. Um, 
he was an Irish uh, uh, writer, poet, uh, kind of playwright, but then was sort of based for a lot of his life in uh, in London mm-hmm. um, in uh, 1850s uh, up to, to the 1900s. Uh, he he died in his mid 40s, um, so uh, in the in the year 1900. And yeah, he was you know he's a really interesting figure because you know in our age of celebrity, he really was he really was that sort of figure. Yes. he was um, uh, an obviously a, an incredible writer but also was caught up in a lot of sort of kind of trials and controversy yes. um, and even had court trials, right. That he, that he was in that some would call like kind of like the first celebrity trial. So he's living in kind of in a Victorian, uh, Victorian England at the time. And so there's really strict um, kind of lines of, of morality. And he definitely uh, put, definitely pushed those in a lot of different ways. Um, in terms of his writing, he's well known for uh, the play, the importance of being earnest um, I think the picture of Dorian Gray is probably the thing that he's most well known for, I would mm-hmm. guess. Um, but then also uh, he has um, this this work that he wrote called Salome, which is the story of of Herod and Herod's uh, um, uh, wife uh, and the beheading of John the Baptist. And it's accompanied by pretty graphic um, graphic art and images. And so it's kind of a, a controversial uh, controversial thing that was sort of like the play was banned, you know, when it first came out and all this sort of stuff. So that's a little bit of kind of Oscar Wilde. He was a, um, yeah, seemed really interested in religion, but was also, um, was just sort of, um, you know, exploring, uh, exploring yeah. life, exploring pleasure and was, was really an advocate for that as well. So com- complicated person for sure. Yeah. Oscar Wilde is, um, gosh, he's, when you, when you read him, he's brilliant. He has this really sharp, keen insight into humanity, which I think he's, he's writing so sharply and keenly in a lot of ways because of, um, because he is Irish in an English society, still living in a time where to be Irish in an English society is, is to be always, uh, going against the grain to have to, uh, Mm. to be, to be fighting. And then secondarily, he uh, was a, a, a queer man. And so mm-hmm. he was married, but he also had these um, other relationships. And, and that was what his trial was about. Uh, I think it was a moral indecency, I think was what he was being tried yeah. for. Right. And, and he actually went to, to jail um, for yep. it and it, it kind of broke him and he uh, died shortly after. So he has this tragic arc to his life story um and you can feel the the tension of of uh his um identity and wrestling and all of that in dorian and in uh, yeah. even in in more comic works like the importance of being earnest which is all about identity too to some extent um with the swapping of characters and and i i love the I think my first introduction to Oscar Wilde was through the '90s movie of of the importance of I being have, earnest. I, I, yeah, I have not seen that. Yeah, it's actually really good. Um, I really, well, I haven't seen it in a really long time, so maybe I shouldn't speak so confidently. But um, I loved it as like a teenager, uh, and then I actually read Dorian Gray like after watching oh, that movie. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, he's he's a complicated figure, and. Um, Gosh, so gifted. So let's go into Dorian and discuss yeah. Dorian. Um, for those listeners who haven't read it before, could you give a brief synopsis for us of, of what this story's about? Yeah, so uh, the picture of Dorian Gray really centers on a character, Dorian Gray, and as the title suggests, it also centers on a picture. So um, Dorian Gray is a uh, a young a young man, uh, a really beautiful young man, uh, really handsome uh, young young fellow, and he has um, he has a friend named Basil who who is a painter, and uh, Basil draws this this painting is having Dorian sit for a painting for a portrait, and and as that's happening. Um, uh, another friend, uh, a friend of Basil comes into the mix, Lord Henry and Lord Henry, uh, while this painting is happening is, uh, Lord Henry's, a an advocate of like this, this new hedonism, this sort of idea that beauty is the main thing in the world and pleasure is the main thing in the world and time is your great enemy. Uh, so, you know, do, do, um, do the best you can with what you have while you have it, because it'll be gone quickly. So, 
uh, Lord Henry is kind of talking about this while while Basil is making this painting, and Dorian uh, is really you know shocked by these words and really has this sort of um, almost this kind of like conversion moment where he kind mm. of offers this this silent prayer of kind of like oh I wish I, I wish I won't age like I wish kind of this painting would age instead of me, and so this kind of triggers. Um, triggers this this kind of this moment and Dorian uh, begins to move under the influence of Lord Henry and begins to kind of step into uh, kind of this full hedonistic exploration of his existence um, and his passions. And he kind of goes down this this tragic slope, and then it's sort of a question of um, is he is he going to be able to recover, and uh, is he going to be able to sort of redeem himself, or is he going to just sort of slide into decadence? And and that's really the that's that's kind of the heart of the story without yeah. um, without revealing some of the things at the end. Right. And I'm always uh, on this podcast. I'm always wrestling with. Uh, do I just say you know what this novel is? like 130 years old, like yeah, I, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't, you know, spoilers <laughs> yeah. don't exist yeah. for a 130 year old novel, but also and it's like, wor- yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. If you haven't read it, I also don't want to spoil it's it. True. So yeah, it's true. Tension. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think it's also like the, uh, somebody, any, anything that's, that's a great work is going to be worth reading, even if you know what happens, right? Absolutely. That's not the only reason we're reading it, but right. there, I think you are right. There is something to the full experience of, of the text, which is really nice to have when you are also going along for the ride in terms of the kind of movement of the plot. So, so yeah, I kind of, yeah, I wrestle with that too, but I, hopefully that paints enough of an overview for folks to, to make them want to read the book. <laughs> right. And maybe we'll say we might spoil it as we keep talking about yes, it. So that'll if probably you, happen. If you are a listener right now, uh, very curious, not having read Dorian Gray, pause the episode, go read it, and then come back and listen, yeah. uh, because I can't promise that we're not going to go there. So That's right. <laughs> All right. So why did you pick Dorian Gray? When I, asked, when I reached out to you, what made you decide this was the one to talk about? Yeah, this book, this book, I'm, I'm trying to even remember how I got onto this book. I read this first in high school. So I think I was 18 or um, my senior high school. I was on a, I was really just, you know, it was a little bit um, difficult for me at the time to sort of like find the classics to read. I think it's easier now to do that. Yeah. And at, at my, at my point in time where I was high school, it was like, I felt like I had to do a little bit more work. So it was like, Oh, okay. Picture Dorian Gray. Oh, okay. This other book, like I need to read these. Totally. Um, it wasn't as easy as sort of just like Google and then everything's there. Um, or the, this big list is, is there. Um, so it felt a little bit harder. So I think I was searching and desiring to be well-read uh, as I was getting more an interest in literature. So I remember reading A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. Um, and then also this, uh, uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray with Oscar Wilde. And both are both are really interested in sort of like questions of, um, yeah, youth, like, I mean, you, decadence and evil by young people. And can yeah. they be, you know, how how do we straighten them out? And I mean, that's, that's putting it sort of harshly and bluntly. But um, I was interested in that. And so the picture of Dorian Gray really stood out to me because it, it, it's, it feels like a very moral book. Like it feels yes. like a book that's very much sort of moralistic. It's preaching in a lot of ways. It's a cautionary tale. It is. And it was a cautionary tale for me at that age that I was seeking out on my own. It wasn't one that my mom was giving me or somebody from church was giving me. It was one that I was encountering through art on my own terms. And so because of that, it had a pretty profound impact on me. It wasn't a, it was a moral lecture that I was choosing to sort of like sit <laughs> under, but it was also, it's also done in, in a really sort of tragic and compelling and almost kind of haunting um, uh, manner. So that just, that just stuck with me. And so I've always thought about that book and it's always sort of been in kind of like my bloodstream when I think about um, how to be a how to be a person of character, how mm. to um, how to think about um, passions and desires and uh, and virtue and vice. Like I, always, I I think about this book quite quite a bit, even if I don't remember particular plot points mm. um, or details. Like this is just something that stuck with me. I think because of the time and place that I read it. So that that's how I was. I, I initially came to the book, and then later came to it again. Uh, in the in the um, Oscar Wilde seminar that I took uh, as an undergrad, but the it was really the first reading that made the impression on me. Hmm. I love that that your story is so similar to mine about this book. I also read it in high school. Also went through the same thing that it was totally self uh, self explored. Um, 
And my, my, I remember it so clearly. I too was trying to read classics. I said, I want to read classic books. I really want to read classic books. And I would, uh, do my, you know, Saturday chores or whatever, take my allowance and go to Barnes and Noble, the classic section and just Yeah, because you could get it for like six dollars. Yes. And sometimes that's they would what have I like had. the yeah. buy two. Yeah. That's what I have that's too. Right. Um sometimes yeah. they would have the the buy yeah, two. That's the one I had. That's what copy. I had. I lost it. I lost that copy. I'm really angry that I lost it. That's the exact one that I had. Yeah. Cause it was yeah. like seven dollars. I was like, yes. wow, I got this classic book for seven dollars. Yes, or less. Some, some of them were like four, I remember. And see, you can see it still has the sticker on here. It says buy two, get the third free. So I would just buy like a pile and try to get as many free ones as I can. And so Dorian was one of those. And it struck me exactly how you describe mm-hmm. where it was um. For me, it was the first time I had read a book where I really thought about metaphor, which is so funny. Um, Like I had been taught metaphor in school, so it wasn't like I had never seen it before or encountered it. Obviously, like reading things like C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I had thought about these things, but through, mostly through teaching, right? So reading this and going, oh, it's a metaphor and discovering the the power, the preaching power of image and metaphor, quite literally in this book, um, was astounding. And it made it was similar to you, made a long-term impression on me in that mm. I haven't I don't reread it regularly, but it is a book that comes up in my thought more than a lot of other books. And so that's really funny that mm. that you mentioned wow. that experience. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I think that's a testament to, you know, what Wilde was sort of tapping into and and describing. Absolutely. I think uh, his way with images, it's, um, it sticks. You really, especially reading as a teenager, it made such a vibrant impression in my mind. So. Yeah. The the other thing that that makes me think of too, Grace, is, uh, you know, reading it at, um, at the age that we were reading, um, there's also just the, the, the common theme of influence. Right. And I think yes. that's something that you're thinking a lot uh, about as, as a teenager, right. People are talking to you about influence and it's also something that you think about as an adolescent, right. And as an adult, right. And mm-hmm. in your careers, you think about influence. I want to have an influence. I am being influenced by others. And I think because of, because that theme is so immediate in, in the novel as well, I think it also resonates with young readers um, because we're, you know, constantly thinking about that um, of, you know, and being, warned about that yeah at, at different times in different settings so that that also was sort of a, a hook for me as well which is a sort of okay who's who am I listening to who's around me and who am I becoming because of who I choose to to be around you absolutely anticipated one of my upcoming questions for you which is that theme of influence in this novel uh, because from beginning to end this is a word that emerges over and over in Dorian Gray is and the sometimes depending on the speaker they'll say things like influence is everything or influence is nothing um where there's this exploration of what it means to influence someone um and and lord henry is influencing dorian intentionally though dorian himself mm-hmm. is not necessarily aware of that and actually influencing him for his own aesthetic pleasure really just to watch and see what happens And I find this very interesting and, and that makes sense what you say about being a teen and reading it and recognizing the significance therein of that and seeing how clearly there's a a life um, applicability there as you're trying to figure out who you are as a, in youth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting because the way, you know, it, Lord Henry enters into the story, you know, not not necessarily by Dorian's sort of action or choosing, right? Dorian, uh, we enter the story and Dorian has this connection with Basil. Um, and Basil seems to be a, uh, you know, a, a, a decent a decent person. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also questions that in the painting, you know, as Basil is painting it, is it is there his sort of 
uh, romanticization, idolization of Dorian that sort of imbues the painting with this yeah. sort of power, right? This um, so that that's something that I think is legitimate to explore and to consider. But Lord Henry sort of like comes in through uh, through a secondary channel through Basil, and so uh, yeah, it also suggests there are influences that come into our spheres that are not directly in our control, right? We're just people who are out in the world and yes. out among others, and so we're going to have to learn. We we can't be protected from influence just by being around the people that we think are right we're also going to encounter people that are going to um have ideas or or want to influence us in ways that are they're actually um not helpful and so it, it requires virtue to to love those people but also to um to hold fast to you know what what's what's really right and dorian doesn't doesn't have the capacity to do that so i think that's also a really interesting aspect of of thinking about influence that maybe feels more particular to you know um adolescence, but I, but I think is, you know, is, is just a human experience as well. Absolutely. And one of the, I think human to human influence is very real, but something else that, that Oscar Wilde is very interested in is art and that relation of art and influence. So, Mm -hmm. um, I, as I was reading, I was thinking about influence in relation to, uh, less to art, but in, in turn, in terms of what I'm consuming and how it, the picture of Dorian Gray is almost um, prescient in some ways about how what we're consuming always has a shaping force, uh, whether mm-hmm. we are aware of it or not. Um, and and what happens with Dorian is that he is uniquely aware of it because he can look at the picture of himself and see what's happening to his own picture, right? But for for us ordinary folks who don't have a portrait showing us all of our evil desires, um, we sometimes go unaware or, or we are aware and we go forward anyway. Um, and, and I'm just interested in this, especially in an age of we are now consuming more than ever with the access that we have to, to materials of art, of not art, of anything and I was trying to think about what Oscar Wilde, what, what he would note about, because he would certainly have something witty and interesting to say about that. But um, it's a fascinating question. I don't, yeah. have, more, I don't have more to offer. I, yeah. just, I was just mulling this over. Yeah. Well, the, it's interesting because one of the early points in the novel um, – is you know Dorian is being is be, he's sitting for the painting as Basil is working. Lord Henry's there and Lord Henry is talking, and Lord Henry has this voice, right? This almost a sort of like seductive voice, which says that you know Lord Henry continued in his low musical voice with the graceful wave of his hand that's so characteristic of him, and he goes on to say, uh, "I believe if one man were to live out his life fully and completely." were to give form to every feeling, expression of every thought, reality of every dream. I believe that the world would gain such gain such a fresh impulse of joy that he would forget all the maladies of medievalism and return to the Helen Hellenetic ideal. Um, and basically, he's calling for a new um, a new hedonism. And he says, Dorian, like you're the one that can do it, right? You're like you you should do this. And it's interesting because um, Dorian then says, uh, or the novel says, uh, Dorian says, stop. He says, stop, you bewilder me. I don't know what to say. There is some answer to you, but I cannot find it. Don't speak. Let me think. Or rather, let me try not to think. I Mm -hmm. think that's maybe the link into like our moment, Mm -hmm. like stop, let me think, right? Like this sort of, it's difficult to, um, it's difficult to find, right? And this is obviously a a topic many have have spoken to, but just sort of, the quiet of mind, right? The, mm. um, the, the turning of the faucet of the sort of, you know, um, downfall of noise, distraction, voices, videos, memes, right? All these sort of things. And even when we're away from that stuff, we find ourselves, or I find myself trying to think on my own or just to have quiet, but like, I'm, I'm still sort of this yes. other consciousness is still at work. So, 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 you know, that's not what Dorian is facing, but he is facing something that is being presented to him that he senses, oh, I, I really need to weigh this and I need a moment of quiet in order to really consider what has just been placed in front of me. And I think in that sense, there, there is some, some parallel to, um, to our moment as well. Mm, that's a great scene to point to and such and a really essential moment in the book is is that 
long conversation between Lord Henry and Dorian. And I, I was struck by, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about pleasure and this idea of um, that Lord Henry is always thinking about um, rejecting self-denial in any way, shape or form and always saying yes to the, yes to the moment in like a particularly yeah. contemporary phrasing. Um, so in that same conversation, he's telling Dorian, uh, this is a quote, we are punished for our refusals. Every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the mind and poisons us. The body sins once and has done with its sin for action is a mode of purification. Nothing remains then but the recollection of a pleasure or the luxury of a regret. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it and your soul grows sick. It is in the brain and the brain only that the great sins of the world take place. Mm. And um, that passage is uh, the door through which Dorian walks into seeking into a particular mode of pleasure seeking, which seeks to never say no to itself. Right. Um, and I, I was, I would love to hear your thoughts about that line where, about this idea that is a theme throughout the book that you can somehow separate uh, your actions with your thought, if that makes sense with your thought or your morality or your, 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 um, the development of who you are as a person, this, this mm. idea of separation. So he's saying the body, if you just do your, do what you want to do, it's over, it's done. But if you don't do what you want to do, it's going to haunt you. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's um. yeah, that, that's a really key section. And I think that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah. You know, I guess my first, um, my first thought is, you know, there, in order to do that, to embrace kind of Lord Henry's um, kind of philosophy, I think it also requires maybe sort of like this mechanistic understanding of the body and the person, yes, <laughs> sort yes. of like, you know, the body's kind of like this tool, just like let it do its thing, you know, and yes. it, um, it's disconnected from like the heart and like your uh, uh, feeling or kind of the soul. And so it's kind of like, it's all bodily function. It's all just experience and action. Just go do that. It really, once it's done, it's done. It, there's no lingering effects on your psyche or anything, or even on your body itself. Mm. So uh, I think there's a, there's, there's a, um, I don't know, anthropology, there's a, you know, worldview, whatever you want to say that's attached to that. Um, or maybe that is upstream from that, mm. that is, um, that obviously is, um, you know, incomplete and, 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 and troubling in that sense. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's also interesting that in order for that to work for Dorian things, whatever happens to the soul, to the psyche, it, 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 it is not erased. It's just uh, replaced, right? It's, yes, it's located somewhere else. Right. So, yes. so everything that Lord Henry says is actually not true because yes. the painting, um, the picture of Dorian is the one that's going to bear the mark of um, of the body, of, of sin, of guilt, of shame, all these sort of things. So what's happening is just not happening to him immediately. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think there's, and I think in that way, the novel suggests that there's really no escape yes. from... Um, from the consequences of, of, of what we do with our body and what happens kind of in our heart and our psyche, um, to, to our whole self. So in, in that sense, I think we're, we know Lord Henry's foolish, right? When he's a reader, right? It's, it's clear, but then the actual sort of movement of the novel and the reality of the painting and that metaphor really demonstrate, um, the flimsiness of, of what he's preaching to Dorian. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so struck by, uh, by two things. One is that I, I was reading about what folks at the time were saying about Dorian Gray when this book came out. And um, widely, people thought that Lord Henry was Oscar Wilde's depiction mm. of himself in the book. But Oscar Wilde himself says that Basil is who he identifies who he thinks he is in the book and Lord Henry is what the world thinks he is. Um, yeah. So he's sort of writing this caricatured version of himself 
and um, but everyone still is believing that that's who he is. And then he's undermining this witty, urbane, very attractive, very uh, um, socially skilled man who who is saying these things. So it's an interesting. That's interesting to me. But then also, I've reading uh, the character of Lord Henry, and this is also where he has his uh, big spiel, live, live the wonderful life that is in you. Youth, youth, there is nothing in the world but youth. And I thought, oh, how interesting. We're still, even though we, even though um, Oscar Wilde has done this meticulous work of drawing out the consequences of this philosophy so clearly this is still something that could be repeated out of virtually any organ um today and it's striking yeah yeah it it really it really is that's another section that uh really really stood out to me as well just kind of revisiting um and this idea that uh, he talks about it. I thought how tragic it would be if you were wasted. There's such a little time your youth will last such a little time. And this is really different than I think um, other, there are other cultures, right. That are not so obsessed with youth, right. Yes, that's sort yes. of, that's this sort is of not like, the only way. <laughs> yeah. This isn't the only option. You know, it does seem like that to us. I think, uh, you know, even for this time, even, you know, in our context as Americans, um, but there's other cultures where, you know, there is something like, getting old, you know, gray hair, glory, all the, I think of like uh, scriptures and all these different sort of things where it's like, there are other ways to think about this, but it's really difficult. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it makes me think about, um, you know, there's sort of what, um, the role of influence and the role of what our uh, elders are to give to us. They need, Mm. we need them to help guide us into that. Right. So ideally Lord Henry is actually to be giving the opposite to someone like Dorian, to, yeah, an ideal situation. If Lord Henry's a, a you know a virtuous person, he sees he sees Dorian. He sees someone who's beautiful, handsome, charming, uh, all this sort of stuff. He should actually be teaching him the opposite. Just say, hey, mm. for you, this is going to be the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. You hear the gifts you have, all this sort of stuff. Remember, this isn't everything, right? Make yes. the most of this, but it's not your whole life, right? But instead, he does, you know, he 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 he's perverted in that in that particular sense. So yeah. It it makes me think of like, okay, maybe this is the gift of thinking beyond our cultural frame, even mm. to other cultures um, mm-hmm. in our own time, right? And and before where uh, where youth isn't everything, right? Um, but that there's something that can only be understood and gained through the perspective of time, uh, through the perspective of aging, and not uh, not that life begins in your first three decades and then it's over, right? We see that as sort of a side tragedy in Dorian's life, actually, because his parents were both dead and he was raised by his grandfather, who was a hateful person. Mm. So there's a total void in the space of where there could be any counterbalance to youth as beauty and old age as ugliness. Um, Mm -hmm. That sort of just flat alignment, but there's no possibility for him to begin to see that. And so your point as to looking elsewhere is particularly relevant in that case. It's poor Dorian. I mean, also the novel shows us very clearly that he's responsible for, for what he has chosen to do, but you also go, Oh man. Um, Poor poor Dorian for a few pages. (laughs) Right. Right. So this brings up a question that that I keep having that I I know that Oscar Wilde is thinking about. Lord Henry so closely aligns beauty and pleasure. This is central to his philosophy. And so he is interested, deeply interested in beauty and can recognize a lot of forms of beauty. Um, Not all forms, which is, is very clear to us, but beauty and pleasure are so closely aligned. And for Dorian, they become so closely aligned too. And what I think this book wants us to ask and doesn't give us a straightforward answer is what is the role of art in relation to the conscience or to the soul? Um, what, what does that relationship look like? And I wondered if Mm. you had thoughts on it. I know that's a like billion dollar question. It's a big one, but this book is begging us to think about this, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this, this also draws me, um, 
toward the end of the book, end of the novel, yes, where yes. Dorian receives a book um, from Lord Henry. Um, a, if I remember remembering correctly, I think it's a French novel mm-hmm. um, that he gets, and it's one that sort of um, spirals him further into um, into his his decadence and immorality and all this sort of stuff, right? And so there's this really clear point where um, art is is creating um, an impact and influencing toward um, you know uh, unvirtuous sort of ends. So I think it, that suggests on the inverse, you know, what art is going to do the opposite or um, how will art do the opposite? Mm-hmm. How, uh, how, how can art make moral things beautiful rather than we think of, if we were to listen to Lord Henry, um, morality and virtue would be boring. So is there art that mm-hmm. is actually showing the beauty of, of morality, the beauty of, of virtue, the beauty of, of something besides just sort of this this new kind of hedonism um i think the novel suggests that 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 really matters but then i think it's it's complicated because oscar wilde is you know his own person that has his own story too so that's the thing where you're like how does this how does this work because that's not necessarily you know the way he decided to uh to kind of comprise some of his work as well um, Great. Well, in his preface, he writes exactly. Uh, yes. The, were you about? I'll let you say it if you were. No, you say go ahead. I can't quote. find it. I'm trying to flip to it, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the in the preface, he writes, "There's no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all." And he's following one of his uh, one of his main mentors, Walter Pater, who was a big proponent of this idea of art for art's sake. Um, yes. And which is. I'm wrestling with that preface to this book, which I mean, and, and to be fair to, to muddy the waters a little bit um, when this book came out, it was actually used in Oscar Wilde's moral indecency trials as proof of his moral indecency, which is rather shocking to me because I see in it such a clear, clear through line of this, um, awareness of right and wrong. He He's actually mm-hmm. not writing something that is amoral, a in the beginning where there's yeah. no, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, that is, you just think of risk. He's pointing to something about reception and the problem of reception, right? Where people can yes. read it and have completely different, Oh, this yes. is moral. This is immoral. He's writing as a vic- as a late Victorian man who is really resisting and feeling, you know, struggling in the context of late Victorian moral hypocrisy. But I don't yeah. know what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think I think you're picking up on really important elements of of th- this whole sort of dynamic and if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, I think the preface was added later uh, because of the reception to the book. I think mm-hmm. a, initially uh, it was coming, in, you know, as many things at that time were sort of coming in serial installments through newspaper. Yes, yes, um, this is originally in a magazine. By yeah, the, a by magazine, the way, that's right. It, yeah, which also commissioned the same same meal where this was commissioned. Sorry, this is a side fun fact, but I found it really interesting. Arthur Conan Doyle agreed to write a Sherlock Holmes for it. Oh, so wow. just yeah. Interesting That's cool. side yeah. side note, but back to your main point. Yeah, he's writing yeah. it in so, response. In response, yeah, and I think you know it's interesting. Where it says there's no moral art. How can you say that about a book like this? Like yeah. that just doesn't make any sense. You know. Yeah. So I think I think that's one of those moments where you can take a writer's. I mean, this depends on so people's sort of theory of, of of reading. But you know, you have to let the text be the text, yeah. whether someone says something else or not. Like this is a very moral book. Like yes. very very much so. There's there's no way of getting around that. And there's no way of getting around um, the fact that you read this novel and you see very clearly um, Dorian is dealing with the consequences of of his vices and of his choices and and those influences. And no one reads this book and says, "Well, wow, you know, I should be like Dorian." <laughs> it's, right. That's not that's not the way this book works. <laughs> so there's no way around that. Now you can you can sort of. Um, 
resist its um, sort of didactic nature that it gets preachy at points or different sort of things like that. But it's sort of, uh, it's it's really difficult to imagine someone coming to this and saying, you know, oh, here's a picture of art that that has no sense of of morality. It's just art for art's sake. It's like, no, this is, this is saying something. Um, so in that sense, I think, um, you know, it, it was what he was trying to communicate, misconstrued, misunderstood, all that, I mean, apparently, but uh, I think it still stands and it's really valuable in that, in that particular sense. Um, and I think the example, again, of the yellow book in the novel, again, is sort of underscores this point. Yeah. Where Dorian finds this book and it's, and, and then he finds it, it has this influence and then he begins collecting it. He wants first editions. He wants, you know, new leather bound ones. And it's an example of sort of gravitating towards art that is actually producing something that is, um, that is, uh, not well, right? Not, mm. not whole, not, not mm -hmm. good, but Dorian continues to sort of, um, become enamored with with this particular form of art and it's giving him new ideas of of sort of things that uh are not virtuous so so i don't know i, I think the preface is a preface but you know the the novel sort of stands on its own two feet yeah i think too he's so invested in beauty both oscar wilde as a person his life and this novel as its own thing, its own speaking thing, are so invested in finding beauty. What is this? What is beauty? What does it entail? Um, and, and so I think a lot of the, the, so he, he elsewhere says about novels that they're more like mirrors that show a culture's shame to itself. Um, and sadly, I, I did not write the exact quote down, so I don't remember where it's from. But um, but I, I think that he's maybe interested in an idea that the culture is going to see its own beauty and ugliness in, in a work of art. And that is going to be partially what they're reading mm. from it. Mm. Um, so it's almost a... Another, you're, you find it so hard to escape the confines of seeing yourself everywhere you look, right? Mm. Let's, let's go to the, towards the end of the book and think about, spoilers ahead, the ending yes. here. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is a fascinating amazing one of just such an amazing ending he has now been responsible for the deaths of several people so this is not small consequences of his mm -hmm. life choices um he has been directly or indirectly responsible for several people's deaths at this point and the portrait is reflecting that what what when you read this that ending this time what did you think I think what stood out to me um, toward the end, uh, toward the end of the novel, um, is sort of you're you're mentioning Grace earlier talking about beauty. Is he sort of moves from obsession to obsession with these different sort of uh, artistic or beautiful things? Yes, and he gets obsessed with music. He gets obsessed with like perfumes. He gets obsessed with jewels. He even gets obsessed with. Um, uh, Roman Catholic church liturgy. Mm -hmm. And then again, a little bit later, he, he has this sort of obsession with, uh, clerical vestments and sort of the, um, the clergy wear of, yeah. of priests and really in really detailed ways, yes. copes, vestments, chasubles, all these different sort of things. Um, and like he starts collecting them and then music. And so it's fascinating because he becomes this sort of collector of, beautiful things, right? Just like he's collected all of these uh, sensual and, yes. um, and sort of uh, physical uh, e experiences, right? He's just this collector of things. And it's fascinating mm. with the religious stuff. He's collecting religious goods. He has the appearance of these things, but he has no substance, right? There's there's nothing there. He's he's mm -hmm. he's drawn to the to the form, but not the not the essence. Um, and so I find that really fascinating toward the end because it it again shows the sort of um, yearning, the sort of searching, um, this this sort of pull toward toward something that is good, that is beautiful, that is true. Yes. But he can't quite get there. Yes. And I think all of his sensual sort of vices 
are also that same sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's he's looking, he's yearning, um, he's thirsting. If you want to use the language of uh, the Samaritan woman and Jesus in, in mm-hmm. John chapter four, all that sort of stuff. So that really stood out to me this time around. The other thing that stands out uh, is when Basil comes back into the frame, which is a nice sort of storytelling book ending, key conversations with Basil at the beginning, key conversations at the end, is that Basil begins to um, advocate for Dorian uh, to like, hey, I think our sins can be forgiven. Isn't there a verse that says this? Isn't there a verse that says this? Let's pray. What's the prayer that we learned when we were kids and all this sort of stuff? And Dorian is unable to do that. And then there's a line that says, you know, he suddenly felt this sort of well of hatred towards Basil. Mm. And I think it's interesting. I had been reading... um, Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation. And he talks about um, how so much of our hate uh, for others is really um, uh, unworthiness inside of ourselves. And I think mm. that's that seems to be what's happening maybe potentially in that moment for Dorian is he's coming to a full reckoning of what he's become. Basil is pointing that out. Basil is offering a way forward. Dorian doesn't want to take it. Uh, and out of that sort of... Um, guilt, self-loathing, whatever it might be, it now emerges and it's directed at Basil rather than himself. So I, I find the ending, I know that's a lot of different things. I, I found I found oh, the ending great. more um more sort of fascinating and haunting this time around than maybe I had remembered before. And maybe from previous readings I had really been drawn to Dorian's sort of fall at the beginning. Yes. Um but but this time around I think I was like, oh the ending is is quite is quite rich. Yeah, I'm. That scene is so fascinating, and I love that you point that out about uh, his obsession with all these beautiful, beautiful material goods, and that are richly, elaborately described, lovingly described by Wilde, and that it ends up being this interest in form rather than a full thing, a full being, Um, and and the return of Basil, and he ends up. He ends up murdering Basil in mm-hmm. that moment, in that sheer um, feel of hatred. And his pleasure, his his interest in pleasure has over and over led him to dehumanizing the people he's around. Um, again, that interest in only form and not in a full person. So he's interested mm. in them while they're interesting. And then... Um, rejects them immediately once they cease to bring him pleasure. And that is a ends up being this powerfully dehumanizing um, mode where he doesn't see them as full people. Mm. And um and so I, I find that that is that does fit so congruently with these descriptions of beauty that you bring up. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm in the last few pages. What I was really st- struck by this time is that he has this almost litany of blame, where he mm. at various points is blaming something or another for for what has become of his life. So now, post murder of Basil, he has gotten away with it. So he's not, and he's gotten away actually with everything he's done because it doesn't show yep. in his face. There's no. Uh, exterior consequences for for any of his misdeeds. And now he has uh, tried to do something good. This was very interesting. He's tried to Mm. do something good and Lord Henry sort of mocks him for it. He he had been flirting with this country girl and was planning on seducing her. And he stops himself and he's very proud of himself for stopping. Mm -hmm. He says, oh, this is a new a new Dorian. I'm turning over a new leaf. And, and Lord Henry says, Oh, that must have been a very pleasurable feeling for you. Mm. <laughs> and he's really angry about that. He really doesn't yeah. like, so he goes up to the portrait to see if, if there's any change in the ugliness of his portrait, if it has shown, um, shown a change in his character and it doesn't, if anything, it only, he only looks more like a hypocrite. Mm. Um, which brings up several questions, one of which is, is repentance possible at all for him at this point? Mm. And the other question or or relationship is that so often 
pleasure or I see pleasure as something relatively harmless, you know, and and good at most of the time, yeah. right? Um, especially yeah, yeah, yeah. being yeah. like a Western American woman, I, I'm like, oh yeah, like this is good. This, we should treat ourselves, whatever, fill in the blank. It's a very yeah. shallow philosophy, but but generally how I um, how I live my life most of the time and this deadening effect of pleasure over time where everything becomes almost transmuted into personal pleasure, even when you're trying to do the right thing is so insightful. I think of, of wild here. Yeah, it, it is. Um, because I think what it, what it shows for Dorian is that he can't escape himself. He yes. can't escape. He can't escape this trap that he has, um, that's been presented to him and that he's plunged into. And, even as he tries to sort of pull himself out of that pit, um, he's still controlled by uh, controlled by this passion, right? This pleasure. So he's he's doing he's doing a good thing for you know maybe you could say for the wrong reasons, um, and that um, yeah that it, that's that's not helpful to him. That's not a helpful word for him. Um, a better word for him. And this is why he shouldn't listen to Lord Henry. Right? Why he needs somebody else. Where it, it's like doing good, doing if good is um, it, there. There is delight in doing good. You yes. know? And that's what he needs to hear. Uh, he, he needs to. That that's the message that he needs. Right? We don't just do. Um, we don't do good just in a sort of like neutral robotic way. There's delight in goodness. Um, and but but that's not what Dorian is around and that's not what Dorian is presented with. And mm. instead he's left to consider, okay, so maybe there's there there's nothing. There's no way. Uh there's no way outside of this. Yeah. That's a great point, is that there's just as there are lessons in in pleasure in evil, there are lessons in pleasure in good too. And that it's been so one-sided for Dorian that then he feels utterly trapped and ends up trying to destroy his own conscience is, is mm. what the end where he just can't bear that anymore, that consciousness of constant sin and evil, but that there could be a different possibility than destroying your conscience is, is the difficult path forward that Dorian just can't see and is not presented with either. Yeah, you wonder like what um, you know outside of the moment where Basil is encouraged. I mean, that's the real moment for him is to uh, to hear Basil's word of of um, of a new path, right? A path of repentance mm -hmm. to pray, and you know, he even he even quotes uh, Isaiah. Basil was like, "Oh, isn't there a verse somewhere that says, you know, turn, you know, turn to me, and I'll make your 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 sins um, that were red uh, as 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 white, scarlet is red as as white as snow." I think Isaiah one, I think, and but he he doesn't take that path, and mm -hmm. when that door closes, um, it, it's it's difficult to see another way for him because that was that was the opportunity um where in that moment it would be the recognition that this is what i've done this is what's happened to my conscience this is what i've done to others and i, I seek uh, i seek atonement here i seek repentance um but then now he's he he closes the door on that and so now it's like okay now i have to do things fully uh in a in a fully righteous way right and then when he's presented with the fact that hey the good thing you did you did it for a selfish reason he can't handle that yeah um and and he's he's crushed so you know once that door closes with basil it it becomes clear that they're really there there's not going to be a way forward for dorian not because it's not possible but because he in 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 i think if you read that with that merton quote um in a way of sort of deep self-loathing he's um he's closed that door himself and then mm. he's he's sealed that really with you know in, in basil's blood right in a, in a real vicious act yeah and that final scene where dorian destroys his conscience by destroying the portrait itself he's he realizes he still realize he has enough awareness in him to realize I, he could confess for this murder and that would be the way forward is confession. Mm -hmm. But that is the most deeply unpleasurable, unpalatable, horrific idea to turn yourself in for a murder that you did get away with and that no yeah. one remotely suspects you. And he chooses instead 
um, to slice the portrait. Thanks for choosing this book. I've so yeah. enjoyed our conversation. We're coming up on uh, on a on a time limit, but for people, um, so for people who are listening, who uh, are curious, where can they find you online and learn more about your work? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a a, a book uh, that's been been out for about a year called Reading uh, Reading Black Books: How African American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Just and Whole. So people can check that out. That's probably um, the best offering that I have. Um, <laughs> in my tweet, my tweets are infrequent and not not nearly uh, as insightful. I think as maybe that book is. Uh, but I am on Twitter, uh, just my first and last name. I do have a a newsletter, uh, Good Things on Substack. Uh, I am in a podcast mix uh, with um, Jessica Hooten Wilson, who's written uh, wonderful books on uh, the formative power of literature. So if you like this podcast um, that Grace is doing, I think you'll you'll enjoy Jessica's work as well. That, that podcast with Jessica and Austin Cardi is called The Scandal of Reading. Um, and so that's another place that people can find me online. So those are kind of the main, the main online spaces that um, I dabble in. I want to put in an intentional plug for your book. I really enjoyed it. And I readers who are interested in literature uh, shouldn't miss it. You do an excellent job of introducing Black literary figures and exploring their work in a very acute and faithful way. And so I do want to put a plug out there again, just repeating you. Thank you. That yeah. It, um, you guys should check it out. But yeah, thank you for coming on. Thanks for talking Dorian with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and I'd love to hear from you if you wanted to share a book that changed you, or if you have any questions. If you'd like to read more of my writing and hear about what I'm up to with medieval literature, you can subscribe to my free monthly Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond, at gracehammond.substack.com. I'd also deeply appreciate it if you rated and or reviewed the podcast on the platform of your choice. It really helps me out a lot and helps other folks to find it. Thanks again and happy Easter. Easter.